The following program is paid for by Absolute Mortgage, a division of Finance of America Mortgage, LLC, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS 1071, AZBK 0910184. Tina Mitchell, MLO 145420, is a licensed loan originator with Absolute Mortgage. Visit absoluteloans.com or call 888-90-HOMES for cost information. You're listening to The Money Hour with your host, Tina Mitchell, sponsored by Absolute Mortgage, a division of Finance of America Mortgage. Now in the studio, local mortgage and finance expert, Tina Mitchell. Welcome to The Money Hour on 1150 AM KKNW, the Saturday, June 4th show. I am your host and mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. I provide you news on everything money, fresh information and market trends in our local economy. If you're hearing my show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast, but I'm here to answer your questions or better yet, connect you with the amazing guests that I have in studio with me today. Please call the show at 1-855-411-50. Again, that's one Eight five five four hundred eleven fifty, or online at themoneyhour.com. And the lineup for my show today, Kim Frazier with John L. Scott, uh, preparing your home for sale from start to finish. She's going to talk about staging, pricing, marketing, showing, negotiation, and most importantly, the close. Also in studio, I have Barry Bergner and Enrico Pozo with Real Logics Sotheby's International Realty. Floating homes in the Seattle market we're going to talk about today. So excited. First time six years of my show that I've ever had a conversation around uh, floating homes. So it's going to be an exciting show. Great information and great guests in studio. For more information on any of the topics discussed, please call into the show at one 855 411.50. Again, one 411150 or online at com. And let's go ahead and start out with a little money chat. Money. Money. Today, I thought I would stick in my own arena, mortgages, and talk about PMI, or private mortgage insurance removal. Uh, Mentioned in earlier shows, I've talked about uh, the different ways to get around paying mortgage insurance or monthly mortgage insurance, but I want to talk to you about how to remove monthly mortgage insurance if you choose that option. Uh, There's also mortgage insurance, for those of you that don't know, I've brought into previous shows that it is now a uh, tax benefit. So you can write off if your gross income is $100,000, you get to write or less, you can write off 100% of the premiums. For homeowners with adjusted gross income from 100,000 point one to 110,000, deductions are phased at 10% increments for each additional $1,000 of adjusted gross household income. So it's really great that that was brought back in. Um, Now today, again, I'm going to talk about the PMI or MI, when that can be removed. Now it depends on the loan and if you remove mortgage insurance, the mortgage insurance premium, MIP, is for FHA financing and is required for the life of the loan. So if you're using government financing through FHA, you have to pay the mortgage for the life of, mortgage insurance for the life of the loan. Now I've had clients asked me, well, should I just go ahead and wait until I qualify for a conventional or wait until I have a down payment for a conventional um, so that I don't have to have that monthly mortgage insurance for the life of the loan? And my answer would be no. And the reason why is because if you wait, you're going to have access to the same financing that if you bought now, took advantage of this market, see the appreciation, and then just refinance when you're in a position to get that conventional loan. So during that period of time, you're still getting the potential equity, the tax write-off, and all those other good things of homeownership. So get into whatever financing you can and and then turn around and refinance into conventional, and then you can look at the options to remove mortgage insurance at that time. Now, conventional financing is private mortgage insurance known as PMI. 
So we're going to talk about how that gets removed. Now, the Homeowners Protection Act law governs when mortgage lenders can and must remove private mortgage insurance for a home loan. So lender's mortgage insurance, also known as the private mortgage insurance, is insurance payable to the lender for the trustee of a pool of securities that may require um, when they're taking out the mortgage loan. It's an insurance to offset the losses in case a consumer is not able to repay the loan and the lender is not able to recover its cost from foreclosure and sale of the mortgaged property. Now, PMI is required on a conventional loan with less than 20% down. So let's talk about the options of removal. First, we have automatic PMI termination. Once your loan to value is at based on the original price you paid for the home is at 78%, the PMI will automatically terminate if the mortgage payments are up to date. Now, if you want to request PMI removal, you can request removal of PMI when the loan balance reaches 80% of the original home's value at the time you secured the loan. Now, PMI disclosure will be part of the disclosure package and list the dates when, you can, when you're going to hit that 80% mark. Extra principal payments during that time can shorten the time to reach that 80%. To have the PMI removed, you must be current on your mortgage payments and request the PMI removal in writing. The lender may require you to prove that there is not a second loan on the home and you may also be um, have to pay for an appraisal to show that the home value has not decreased. Now, this is an extra 2% in the loan to value from 80% to 78%. Again, the 78% is when it automatically terminates. So you're not going in for any request to have it removed. At 80%, you can do that. But if we look at the extra money out of your pocket to mark your calendar for when it hits that 80% loan to value from the original price that you paid on the property on a $100,000 loan with an estimate of 0.78% calculation for the cost of mortgage insurance, this would be an additional 65 dollars a month you would pay from the time you reached 80% loan to value to the time that it automatically drops off at the 78% loan to value so based on today's interest rates um, maybe you'd be looking at 80% target about a year of cost so there'd be $700 that you'd miss out on that opportunity so again just understanding how the removal of PMI or private mortgage insurance works can help save you some money now, alternative termination criteria. The Homeowners Protection Act dictates that PMI can stay on the loan for no longer than one half of the term of the loan. Even if the loan to value is greater than 78% when half the term has passed. So the lender must remove the mortgage insurance. This is final termination of PMI might occur with mortgage terms that are interest only payments, uh, negative M loans, uh, if your value drops dramatically, uh, then that would be an opportunity to where the alternative termination criteria might kick into place. Now, the most popular options for re releasing the PMI because of the appreciation in your property is request early PMI removal. So you can request early removal of PMI when the loan reaches 80% again of the home's current market value. So in addition, you must have a minimum history of making mortgage payments on the loan. With most lenders, that's going to be anywhere from 24 to 36 months. So to have the PMI removed early, you must be current on your mortgage payments and request the PMI removal in writing. The lender may require you to, again, prove that there's no second mortgage on the home, and definitely you're going to be paying for an appraisal because you've got to show that that value has increased to hit that 80% loan-to-value based on the current market 
Now, again, there are always ways to avoid paying PMI with less than 20% down or avoid paying the monthly PMI. Um, If you listen to the show on a regular basis, you know I'm all about the buyout of the mortgage insurance. It's an opportunity for you to pay an upfront fee fee to eliminate paying that monthly mortgage insurance. Depending on your credit scores, different qualifying factors is going to determine what that cost is. But normally, the cost to buy out the mortgage insurance, one-time fee upfront at closing, is going to, you're going to have that paid off in a shorter period of time than the minimum requirement of that two to three years. You're going to have to hold on to it, assuming you get the appreciation to hit the 80% loan to value. Now, if you don't have that additional cash uh, to pay it up front, you can also, depending on qualifying, just finance it into the loan. So that's a pretty cool option. Again, when you look at the numbers, that's why I love mortgages so much, because it's all about the numbers. Um, again, those of you that are regular listeners to the show, I do own a mortgage software. It's all about education. And when you look at the analysis, it's really easy to see. You just look for red or green. Green means you're in the positive. Red means you're in the negative, And it really helps to make a decision on the best loan program for you. Uh, there's also lender-paid mortgage insurance, where you're going to take a higher interest for the life of the loan to avoid the buyout of the mortgage insurance and avoid the monthly. Not one of my favorite options unless you're going to keep the property very short term. So that is my money chat for you today. Coming up next on the money hour. Are you getting ready to sell your home? How do you prepare your home for sale from start to finish? Well, that's what Kim Frazier is here with me to talk about from John L. Scott right here at 1150 AM KKNW after this short break. Are you tired of wasting your hard-earned dollars on rent to pay off someone else's home and at the same time losing out on the tax benefits in the process? Kim Frazier with John L. Scott has assisted over 800 individuals and families just like yours in obtaining the dream of home ownership. Kim has been practicing real estate since 2002 and is recognized in the top 1% of all real estate brokers. Kim is well equipped to assist you whether you are a first-time buyer or a move-up buyer looking to achieve your real estate goals. Hi, I'm Kim Frazier and I would love to assist you with your real estate needs. Please feel free to call me at 425-209-5638 or you can find me online at KimberlyFrazier.com. You're listening to The Money Hour with your host, Tina Mitchell. Sponsored by Absolute Mortgage, a division of Pinnacle Capital Mortgage Corporation. Now in the studio, local mortgage and finance expert, Tina Mitchell. Welcome back to The Money Hour with your host and mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell, right here at 1150 AM KKNW, the June 4 show, bringing in expert advice and inside knowledge on today's events in our local economy and how it will affect your money. If you're hearing my show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast, but you can call the show at 1-855-411-50. Again, that's 1-855-411-50 or online at themoneyhour.com. And right now I have in studio Kim Frazier with John L. Scott. Kim, thanks for coming back in uh, studio. Thank you for having me. Excited to uh, talk about sellers and what they need to do to prepare their home. We're going to go through all of it for uh, the listeners today. So it's going to be an exciting uh, segment. A little bit about Kim. Kim, again, is with John L. Scott. Uh, Kim's been a real estate agent with John L. Scott for 14 years. It has been recognized in the top 1% of all John L. Scott's agents for 2015. This was Kim's fifth time earning the top 1% designation. Kim has sold over 800 homes in her career and sold 79 homes just in 2005. So pretty amazing uh, numbers talk, and you definitely have the stats and the numbers to show that you're successful in what you do. And like any other industry, uh, the, the more... 
uh, sales and things, opportunities that you're working with clients, the more that you're learning because there's so many different things that are happening in the market, especially when we get into an environment like we are now. So I really appreciate your expertise, Kim. So today we're going to be talking about preparing your home for sale from start to finish. So Kim's going to take us through staging, pricing, marketing, showing, negotiating, and the close. So Kim, um, consulting with a client regarding to repairs needed for a property, uh, deferred maintenance, landscaping, bringing in handyman, contractor, landscaper bids. How do you go through that process with your sellers? So at, when I meet with them the first time, typically, most of the time I'm meeting a client at their home. Um, occasionally, they'll meet me outside of the home at my office or at a Starbucks or something. Uh-huh. And then we'll go to their home and kind of do a walkthrough of you know what, um, in my opinion, um, needs to be done to make it market ready. Um, I think sometimes as sellers, when you're living in the home a long period of time, you don't see things that we catch as agents and what buyers would be looking for and what a good buyer's agent's going to be pointing out as uh, pluses and minuses to each property. So Uh my job is to have as an honest of a conversation with the client as possible, letting them know things that they may or may not be aware of that we will probably need to remedy if they are wanting to get top dollar for the property. Makes sense. And do you have your your power partners of um, people that you're introducing them to to make sure that they're getting that best quality of work and things that they're doing on their home? Absolutely. I have a list of... um, Anywhere from general contractors, stagers, landscapers, roofing contractors, painters, um, different uh, specialists in their field that I can refer them to so they can get, you know, several bids to find out what the most cost-effective approach is going to be for the client. And I think that's so important, Kim, and just I'm, you know, in case you're listening and don't know this, as real estate um, experts, I mean, they can't get any kickback or anything from any of their mm-hmm. their team. They're put together because they want to make sure their job is to kind of oversee everything to make sure that their clients are getting taken care of in all areas. And so I think it's really important to to, to work with those experts that you have already screened to make mm-hmm. sure that they're going to do quality work. So um, keep that in mind uh, if you're looking at selling your property. So Kim, preparing the property for sale, uh, talking about uh, cleaning the property, decluttering it, staging, uh, bringing in um, house cleaners. You want your property to be market ready on that day. So how are you helping in uh, navigating through that process with your sellers? Well, I think once the first thing we do is kind of, we do a couple things at the same time. You can be tackling like exterior projects and things like that. Um, and sometimes interior projects, painting, carpet, um, some repair work and things like that. At the same time, maybe the property is being decluttered. A lot of times, most houses are not ready to be listed on a day's notice. Most uh-huh. people need anywhere from a week to a couple of my most recent clients. It took up to two months to get their properties ready to go just because they were living in the property and life was happening. Yes. Um, so I have a couple that I started working with back in February that are just getting ready to launch now. So it's been almost four months for a couple of my um, higher end clients because um, there's just so many moving parts. Yeah. So... Um, we kind of get that decluttering process going first, what's not necessary. And it's a different process. I have one of my clients recently that just was actually moving out of their house altogether mm-hmm. into their rental early because they didn't want to have to deal with trying to live through the process. Yes, um, That's not an option for most clients, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So um, we kind of have to you know, minimize mm-hmm. what they need on a daily basis to make the showings, especially if they have pets or kids and things like that they're trying sure. to live with. So getting it decluttered, once we're decluttered, then we can start the deep cleaning process 
to make sure everything's nice and shiny and looking good and then bring in the stagers to make it show at its best light. And it's different to staging a vacant property is going to be a much different approach than staging an occupied property. Uh-huh. Uh, most staging companies are not really excited about bringing their really nice furniture into a home that's occupied, Got especially it. if there are kids and pets there, um, just because so of damage to the prop- property. We mostly then use the client's existing pieces, might right. bring a few pieces in, but probably the stages are a little more selective where they're going to charge a little bit more uh-huh. in case of damage and things like that. Um, and then you'll be bringing in, you know, less. they're less concerned about like vignettes and um, accessories and mirrors and pillows and things like that as they are, you know, nice, nice high-end furniture. Got it. Is a little bit more um, readily received, a little bit better from the stager if it's vacant yes. than occupied. So the decluttering process, I would imagine sometimes it's a, a, a counseling process with the sellers because it's not that their items and the things that they have are um, not beautiful and important and have value in them, but it's just, it's personal to them, which, mm-hmm. so can you talk a little bit about what that de- decluttering process means. Yeah, I think that well, one, depersonalizing all their family photos, which okay. is really, really hard. Uh-huh. And I love people's family photos. So the houses that have them, I'm walking through the house looking at all of them, which can be a distraction because I'm busier spending time looking at their cute family than yes. the house. Uh, so I probably, you know, the, I think most advice for most real estate agents is to remove any personal family photos and personal possessions like that um, off of the walls. And then just simplifying, paring things down, mm-hmm. uh, making things as neutral as possible, um, trying to appeal depending on what your demographic is in the market okay. that you're serving, you know, maybe putting little pieces in that um, fits in the Bellevue market. If, you know, a lot of, you know, Asian Chinese buyers, maybe uh-huh. something that might appeal to them. So you want little touches of um, just maybe the culture of what you're kind of appealing to as okay. well um, in the home and kind of taking that approach as well and being mindful. But a lot of times I'll bring boxes over to my clients just uh-huh. to help stop, you know, we'll kind of set aside a pile of, okay, this all has to go leave this yeah. out and we'll let the stager work with this and let them determine what stays and what goes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So you really, it's just about getting that emotional connection with people that are coming into the house. You yeah. want them to be able to uh, visualize and envision themselves in the home, Correct. not the current uh, owners. So reviewing recent solds in the area to come up with a comparable properties, um, contacting an appraiser for um, you know very difficult homes with no available comps if needed. So h- walk me through how you're working with your sellers in comping the property to make sure because it's it's a uh, it's a challenging thing to be able to determine what the value of that home is, and really being able to maximize the buyers coming in to give multiple offers and bid that up. Absolutely. And that's a fine line. Um, You know, there's always a concern if you price it too low and nobody makes an offer that I'm selling my house for less than what it's worth. Uh And I tell my clients, if you only have one offer, then it was probably priced at what it's worth. You know, it's not in this market. If you you price your home competitively, you should get more than one offer. Mm -hmm. As far as the east side or Seattle market would go. Now, south end or up north, it might be a little bit slower. But um, I hear they're I hear they're starting to prick up too. Isn't that crazy? Crazy. Oh, it's it's just a tough market right now. Um, So that's the fine line. I have one that just sold. I listed it for nine ninety eight over in Lakemont, and we sold for fifteen percent over. We sold for one one fifty. Seven offers, fifteen percent above list price. Cash offer, two week close, no inspection, no financing. So we knew kind of. I thought I wasn't surprised. Went to one one. I figured our window was between a million and one one. So we kept it right at a million, Uh um, knowing that we would let the market kind of drive the price. Yeah. See, so if you're if you're a seller right now, you hear that listed at one, knowing it is 
worth or valued one one. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a strategy behind this. And when you hire somebody, an expert like Kim, and her numbers uh, show that she is, you've got to listen to the advice and what they're saying that you need to do, because it's about creating that sense of urgency on that mm-hmm. property. So it's, um, again, it's a, a challenging thing to be able mm-hmm. to figure that out. And that's why listening to your advice is so important. Thank you. Um, so discussing with your clients, their goals and motivation in regarding to the pricing, um, because I know that conversation can be a little challenging sometime and get it right the first time. Occasionally buyers are overpriced their homes and can cause them to linger on the market. So how are you getting that, having that conversation with your clients to get them to understand that this is what we need to do to maximize the profit? Well, you know, I kind of share with them the high and the low. You know, Uh I always try to get my clients top dollar. I'm never trying to take the, you know, easy way out to, you know, get it priced as low as possible to make my job easier. My job is to maximize the value for my client Uh um, each and every time. However, no matter what my price is, it always seems like the client wants to push another 5 or 10%, you know, Uh or another agent's come in and they're trying to get the price up higher. And so I kind of just put that back on their core. I'm like, well, where are they, what comps are they using? You know, Uh these are the comparables that I have that sounds great. You know, yeah. I had a client recently, I said probably one six and they said, well, this other agent said one seven. I'm like, well, then why don't we go to one eight? Yeah. Because I don't see any comps at one seven. So yes. you might as well be one eight. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so talk about that listing for, you know, the, the um, agents that come in and say that they're going to, yeah, they're getting the, the listing based on the higher price. It's not about the price that you put it on the market. It's about the price that's going to happen at the end. So tell, tell my sellers out there the risk of overpricing a home. Well, one example, I have a listing currently. That was the one the example that I just gave. I uh-huh. came up with a 1598 list price. Uh-huh. Um, the other agent came up with a 1.7. I jokingly said, well, why don't we just put it out at 1.8? Since uh-huh. we're not using comparables anyway, we might as well try to get you 1.8. <laughs> um, I thought, what the heck? I'm paid on commission, so uh-huh. <laughs> it works for all of us. So um, we ended up um, getting an offer. Um, first week on the market, we had two offers. Both of them mm-hmm. came under $1.6 million. Uh, One was one five fifty. One was uh-huh. one five eighty. Um, I got both of them to come up to the list price because I did have one, two offers. So okay. I did get them up to the one six fifty price. Uh, the first buyer ended up walking. So we came back on the market. They fell apart during inspection, came back on the market. And now we're just today going into contract with that second buyer that we didn't take the first time. Okay. Now at $1.6 million, which was my mm. recommended price to begin with yes. three weeks ago. So how does that so. you know, work, Kim, when everything is online and people are searching uh, based on, on value or based on what the list price is when you know things are... I mean, I would think it would be better to list mm-hmm. low to get people to look at it where they could just actually decide not to even look at the yeah. home because... And we're only know. talking like 3 to 5%. We're not talking uh-huh. 20% low. Yes. I mean, you're just slightly, you know, if you're slightly at market or below, and I don't even think that that price was extremely low. I mean, uh-huh. the price that I had recommended in the other agent was about 100000 difference. Yeah. And we are getting basically the list price that sure. I recommended, you know, initially. Um, and the other thing, too, that people have to take into variables, you know, a two-story is going to price out differently than a Rambler, than a two-story yeah. with a basement or one-story with a basement. Yep. Below-grade square footage is not going to, you know, comp out at the same price per square foot as something above grade. So I think as a consumer, a lot of people aren't educated to that as well. Even mm-hmm. some agents aren't aware of the disparity and how appraisers yeah. mm-hmm. value that below-grade mm-hmm. square footage. And so I think it's important um, as consumers and as agents, we educate the sellers and the buyers as to the pros and cons of, you know, 
pricing and where the square footage is that you are pricing for each property, each yeah. one's individual. So you talked about appraisers. Let's let's talk about that for a second. What are you doing to um, you know to help with the appraisal process and um, uh, preparing information for the appraiser and being that extra hand to you know help them with their job to be more favorable in the ending outcome? Absolutely. Well, many times we'll have you know removed the key box just because uh-huh. the buyers don't or the sellers don't want to have people accessing the property yep. um, after the sale. Um, and also, that gives us an opportunity as agents to meet the are out there answering mm-hmm. questions that they may have. So important. Um, can you drop a few tips of some homes recently sold that may be yeah. a little bit not as nice or that were very comparable that they may or may not have seen? Yes. Um, I actually do get a call, a lot of calls um, in the Lake Taps market um, for, I do sell a lot of waterfront homes down there as well, uh-huh. and a lot of eight appraisers will call me and ask me questions regarding other properties, you know, um, so oh, I think so you're a kind good of building rapport. that rapport mm-hmm. with the community Absolutely. of appraisers. Yes. Brilliant. So, yeah, so then it's always nice. So if they got to list your own or to appraise one of your properties, uh-huh. you've helped them out a little bit, or they're yes. like, hey, do you know this property? How would it compare to this property? So I think as agents, it's wise for us to be cooperative with the appraisers mm-hmm. if and when possible to make sure they're getting accurate information to help their own case, but will also hopefully help your clients down the road as well. Totally agree. So planning market, um, planning or putting together the plan, pictures, virtual tours, videos, brochures, mm-hmm. brokers open, uh, mega, open, mega open houses, you know, where you're doing that list launch, uh, websites for Zillow. What different things are you uh, coaching with your clients as far as that marketing strategy? Absolutely. Um, everything's online these days, yes. you know, so you want to make sure you have great online presence and Mm-hmm. Um, images and things like that. So I definitely always hire professional photography, always. Okay. Um, I think some people still use their iPhones, believe it or not. Um, every once in a while, some agents, I'm like, oh my gosh, those are the most yeah. horrible pictures I've ever seen. Uh-huh. But they somehow make it online. So I think for those of us who actually spend the money and invest in our clients' listings um, with professional photography, and it's more common today than it used to be, say, five years ago even, sure. that you have great you know, photography. It's important. You know, it costs anywhere from... Probably a low end would be three fifty up okay. to seven hundred, depending on the home. No, um, to get professional that the, something that the seller pays. No, no, the agent. Oh, it's would all pay. part of. I okay, guess, all right. I mean, for me, I absorb that cost. Okay. I think some yep. agents may try to pass that. I do know a few agents that do pass that cost uh-huh. off. But I think that um, as me, as the agent, that's part of the expense that you're hiring me to do. So Wonderful. all of this is included in my listing fee. Um, I don't put any co- additional cost back onto the consumer. Okay. Everything would be taken care of for me. I feel like that's what the they're staging hiring and me all for. of that. Depending on the commission structure. Okay. Staging would be. So I have a few right now that I've paid for, and I have a couple that my clients have paid for, okay. depending on what we've worked out as makes far as sense. the commission and things like that and what we've done to be able to put that together. Makes makes total mm-hmm. sense. So when it comes to the pictures, because I know the you know um, first impression, it does matter because that first impression they have of the home when they're looking at these different mm-hmm. properties online, the pictures, it can have that extension of the emotional connection once they make it out to the property. So um, uh, what other special things um, is important in marketing because I know you do a lot of high-end homes Mm -hmm. and I would imagine that that even steps it up to a different dynamic when you're going through that marketing. Absolutely. So a couple other things that we've um, done recently too. We have a new um, video that we've been doing. It's a Matterport video which is like Uh a 3D tour which is really exciting. So you can basically it's almost like you're walking walking through the home. It Uh just takes that whole virtual tour experience up to a new level. Um, So we actually purchased the software and cameras ourselves this last year so we're not limited to having to work with a photographer 
schedule, we can just do it in-house and, okay. and get it taken care of when the weather is decent and uh-huh. we're not having to worry about that. Um, another thing that we do, so videos. So we can do on the higher-end listings, too, we can do a video um, shoot of that house. And um, it's really nice. We can either have it narrated by myself or uh-huh. by my clients and telling wow. them, you know, what features they loved about the home and why they loved living there. So that's another really nice feature that we can also nice. add, which is an option for consumers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and those run about $1,500, anywhere from okay. 1200 to 1500 depending on, you know, the company that you use. But uh-huh. I think it's a nice, invaluable, you know, addition yes, that you can add definitely. to um, for those higher-end listings and things like that. Um, so those are a couple of things that we do. Of course, you know, high-quality, you know, brochures, uh-huh. nice quality materials. I think it's always a reflection of you know, the property and yourself as an agent mm-hmm. in the presentation of the listing, not only are selling the house, but you're selling yourself yes. for um, anyone in the future looking to do business or hire someone to list their home. Uh-huh. Um, and then another thing too, um, brokers opens, depending on what area you live in, some brokers opens are more well attended than others, depending on what region the agent's working out of. Okay. You know, different markets are better attended than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and then open houses are really, really popular um, in King County. So King County open house get a ton of traction, a um, lot of activity every weekend. The last weekend, I think I had 35 to 45 people um, per day at my open house, really? wow. which is exciting. That was like in the $1.2, $1.3 million price point. So, uh-huh. you know, an average price point for the Bellevue area, but um, I guess upper average, you yes. know, isn't that yeah. crazy? That's one, crazy. two. Yeah. yeah. One, two is just an average price one, here two. on the Yeah, side. it's a little <laughs> higher, but yeah, we're sorry, it's a 1,200 square foot rambler. Oh, just kidding. Oh so, um, but yeah, so the open houses are getting a lot of traction and things like that. And typically, Typically, what we're seeing is that agents will list a house on a Thursday, um, brokers open Friday, Saturday, mm-hmm. Sunday, open house, open house, review offers, maybe Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday of the following okay. week, yeah. if any received. And so when you mention a, a listing launch, what is that? So that first weekend, um, something that we really do heavily at John L. Scott is getting out that uh, day to the community, the day before the open house, okay. um, putting little door knockers, little signs on their door handle, inviting them to the open house, getting kind of an early entry for neighbors about an hour ahead of time, uh-huh. inviting them to come in because they're all curious anyway. So you might sure. as well just go address them and say, yep. hey, come on yep. over. I'd love to meet you. And also another opportunity, maybe they have a friend or family member wanting to move into the neighborhood as okay. well, which is great. And then just really getting um, lots of balloons, lots of signage. I have about 20 signs at my open houses that we put uh-huh. through the neighborhoods that were um, doing the open house, trying to draw as much traffic in as okay. possible, Yeah, um, which is nice. I just That's had awesome. a mega open house um, a couple weeks ago. We mailed out 4,500 invitations wow. um, to the closest 4,500 residents inviting them to come by and see the property. A lot of residents Mm -hmm. to uh, get that marketing. So negotiating multiple offers um, if received and the offer period and backup offers, how do you coordinate all that, Kim? So basically, talk with a client prior to listings. It has to be um, put in the MLS that mm-hmm. you're having an offer review period. And any offers, if no offers review or if any offers received, will be reviewed on such and such a date. And it's really we have to be really careful as a consumer. We can't put a date out there of Tuesday, and then all of a sudden on Sunday we're taking another offer yeah. without really having contacted everyone. And if you've done an open house, it really is puts the consumers out there at a disadvantage. So if you're going to put an offer review date out there, make sure it's a date that you can stick by. Okay. Um, just because people maybe will wait or get their hopes up and think they have a few days to kind of wait and get their financing together and things like that. Yep. So we usually just get that date and then collect offers. I did one last night, received three offers on a listing. And uh-huh. by 1030 last night, we had it signed around and pending. Congratulations. So thanks. So close. Before we close up our time together, mm-hmm. let's talk about closing up this property for the seller. So there's a lot of stressful things that happen during a closing process that if you're working with a great agent, buyers and sellers just think this process can, you know, 
just go smoothly, but all the work starts once you're under contract. Mm-hmm. And um, so what are some things to be cautious of? And uh, what are you doing on the back end to ensure everything is running smoothly for your sellers? Well, one of the things that's really important that I've noticed recently that sellers sometimes have moved or they haven't given the escrow accurate forwarding information. Okay. So as far as loan payoffs, things like that, first, second, HOA, contacts, things like that, it's really important for sellers to make sure that their escrow company has you know all of their pertinent information for the payoff because sometimes that can yes. slow down the process. Okay. Um, so that's something really key that the, the seller needs to make sure they get that escrow pack get turned into escrow right away. Um, and then for myself, just kind of managing escrow, managing through the inspection process, the other agent expectations, any work orders that need to be done, uh-huh. and then just making sure whether the seller is in town or out of town, coordinating signings, things like that, key exchange, and then recording numbers, and then yeah. closing. I know you're doing a lot more than that, Kim. You've got all kinds of things coordinate to make sure the lender is doing their job, escrow is doing their job, titles here. There's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes. And, Absolutely. you know, I just, as our time wraps up here, um, for any sellers, and if you're a buyer, uh, Kim works with both buyers and sellers, um, you know, working with an, uh, an expert in the local market uh, with proven numbers, uh, proven success is so important. This is a lot of money. This market is crazy. It's competitive. It's hard. Um, But you can have a smooth process if you're working with somebody that's got a smooth system um, and just this is what you do day in and day out. So, Kim, thank you so much for spending time with me uh, today. Look forward to having you come back uh, again in the near future. Thank you, Tina. A pleasure as always. Coming up next on the Money Hour, how would you like to live on a floating home. My gosh, I would love to live on a floating home. I'm excited. I have six years in my show and I've never had an opportunity to talk about floating homes with experts that see this is what they, they do and they work with a lot of um, lot of houses on the water. I have Barry Buckner and Enrico Pozzo with Real Logic Sotheby International Realty right here on 1150 AM KK and WF the short break. Hi, I'm Minnie Driver. Ovarian cancer can affect women of all ages, even in their 20s. There's no early detection test, and symptoms can be subtle. So know your risk factors, such as family history of cancer and presence of gene mutations like BRCA. Take control of your health. Talk to your family and your doctor. The sooner the better. Meanwhile, we'll continue our collaborative research into diagnosis and treatment. To learn more, go to su2c.org ovarian. You're listening to The Money Hour with your host, Tina Mitchell. Sponsored by Absolute Mortgage, a division of Pinnacle Capital Mortgage Corporation. Now, in the studio, local mortgage and finance expert, Tina Mitchell. Welcome back to The Money Hour with your host and mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell, right here on 1150 AM KKNW, the Saturday, June 4th show. It's a great day to talk money. That's why I'm here. And that's what the show is all about, how to make money save money, to have a better quality of life for you and your family. If you're hearing my show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast, but to talk with the guests that I have in studio or to chat with me, you can call the show at one 855 1150 Again, that's one 855 1150 or online at com. And right now in studio, Barry Bergner and Enrico Pozzo with Real Logic Sotheby International Realty. And we're going to talk about floating homes in the Northwest and very excited to have you guys in studio. Thank you so much, Barry. This is the first time or you've been here, Barry and Rico. This is the first time that I've had a, a conversation with you. So very excited. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. And a little bit about Enrico. 
a passionate real estate professional with over a decade of experience and proven results. Uh, Enrico is one of the most respected brokers among his peers and clientele alike. Experience, knowledge, innovative, and commitment to his clients are the foundation of his business. Enrico has been acknowledged with numerous distinctive top sales awards, both locally, nationally, and internationally, and consistently ranks in the top 1% of brokers. Enrico and his team provide a depth of market knowledge and a keen understanding Understanding of diverse property types, including unique specialties in floating home residents, res, waterfront residents, condominium, single-family homes. Uh, he's respected in the agent community with proven st- uh, strength and initiative solutions and negotiation, both skilled, critically, and close to your home successfully. A little bit about uh, Barry. Barry has been uh, selling real estate for 13 years, um, experienced and voted best in client satisfaction as published in Seattle Magazine ever. Every year since 2005, he's a certified negotiation expert, certified residential specialist, and has been given uh, his has his green realtor designation and accredited staging professional. So again, I as we took us to commercial, let my listeners know how excited I am for this segment and conversation with you guys because we're talking about floating homes and what a better place to buy a floating home than right here in the Seattle area. So uh, Barry. How long have the two of you been partnering together? Yeah, Enrico and I started working together at the, well, we started working at the same time, started selling real estate in 2002 and took us 10 years to figure out that uh, we'd uh, like to partner together. Hi. So since 2012, and the motivation behind that was twofold. One, to offer our clients better service mm-hmm. where, you know, there's always somebody there. If one of us is busy, there's always somebody there to help, um, collaborate on uh, on issues. There's always something new that's coming up, something we haven't uh, run into before. So we collaborate on strategy and uh, marketing. And uh, so second reason was uh, with this profession, you can work 24-7 mm-hmm. for a whole lot of days in a row. And yeah. And uh, we wanted more balance in our life. And uh, so working together affords us the opportunity to take vacations and know that our clients are going to be well taken care of. That's awesome. And obviously with the time that you guys have been um, uh, working together, because it's hard it's hard to do that unless it's the right partnership. And you guys have proven that, obviously, with the time behind it. So um, that also means, obviously, you've got a great balance there, which is going to be great for your your clients. So I've been doing this hype up on, on what we're going to talk about, which is about floating homes. But that's not all that you guys do. So can you share with my listeners, uh, what type of properties um, do you guys sell? Yeah, so our, our website, seattlebydesign.com, is really mm-hmm. known for floating homes and condominiums. However, um, we do most of our business by referral. So Uh because of that, we sell uh, single family homes, um, town homes, waterfront homes, uh, pretty much, pretty much uh, the whole, the whole. So anything uh, that your clients need, it's just, you have that, that, that niche for the, the, the water, the floating homes and homes on the water. So um, Enrico, are there different types of houseboats out there? Uh, definitely, definitely. There's uh, a, <laughs> there's almost as many types as there are houseboats <laughs> uh-huh. there, it, but there are two main categories. There are floating homes and they're also what are now called on water residences, which are in the past we used to call those house barges and okay. they're differentiated. Like if you, if you think of um, the movie Sleepless in Seattle, yeah. that's a floating home. Okay. And, and it really looks like a, uh, a traditional home. 
built on top of a, a raft or a float. Okay. Uh, and um, a house barge or an on-water residence has a hull, similar to a boat. It's more boat-like. And sometimes they also have... Sometimes they have an engine, uh-huh. uh, but they do have a hull, and it requires completely different kind of maintenance. Um, different, uh, they're financed differently. Um, so, what's the ratio uh, difference between? I mean, would you say it's fifty-fifty or majority? No, the majority are floating homes. Okay, uh, and, and I think maybe you know maybe there's like. 2080. I think yep. that's uh, the ratio. Okay. So, okay. Uh, but, but that's a guess. I, I don't have that number exactly. I know sure. there's about fly, 500 floating homes. Uh, I, I work much less in the, uh, in, in the kind of house barge range. Okay. Uh, so, again, any other difference between the um, floating homes and the houseboats? Uh, well, um, well, between, you know, among floating homes, there are differences uh-huh. as well. Like, it has a lot to do with the um, with the community that it's built in. Okay. Uh, some communities are condominiums. Uh, some communities are co-ops. Uh, others are lease docks. And then there are also some private docks where uh-huh. people own the, they don't only fl- own the floating home, but they also own uh, land up the upland uh, okay. uh, property. Sometimes there's a house on top of it that, and it's all one, you know, considered to be one property. Okay. So, so a lot of, so a lot of different types of floating homes. A lot of different, of a lot of different kinds. And each time we take on a listing, we just have to kind of, figure the puzzle out you know what what do we have to work with here yeah and, wow and it you know often requires different types of inspections and different types of uh, uh lenders uh-huh. uh, sometimes title is insurance is available sometimes it's not so what about where you can find these floating homes in seattle and how many are there there are about 500 left. So there's 500, there's 500 left, meaning five, just 500, not, not on the market, obviously, but there's a total, or is there 500 on the market? No, no, no. Yeah, there, no. There's, there's about 500 <laughs> total uh, floating homes in Seattle left. Uh-huh. And I, I'm, I'm saying that because there used to be about 2,000 of them. Uh, so what happened to the other 1,500? Well, a lot of those have been eliminated over time, and some of that had to do, a lot of that actually had to do with the construction of I-5, when, when I-5 was being constructed on the, uh-huh. and kind of, you know, start to straddle the, the north side of the lake. The other thing had to do with the uh, World Fair in 1962. At the very bottom of the lake, they were going to build a boatel um, uh, for the World Fair, and they eliminated some, some floating home communities, and they were never, um, you know, the boatel was never built. Okay. Uh, now, the the reason, like if you go to East Lake and you go to the Fairview, the docks on Fairview, you see that yes. they're much longer than they're anywhere else. And that had to do primarily with the construction of I-5. A lot of those floating homes that were removed from docks there were actually then allowed to be tacked onto existing docks on Fairview. Oh, and wow. So that's why sometimes you see about 18, 18 19 floating homes on, on, on a dock on the Fairview side. Okay. Other sides are, tend to be shorter. So but, it's such know, a... Oh, go you ahead. Asked me, you asked me which neighborhoods, you know, where yeah. you can find floating homes mm-hmm. in Seattle. And, you know, you'll find them on the Fairview side, so the uh-huh. East Lake side, mm-hmm. West Lake side. There's some in Fremont. Um, and then uh, there's some in Portage Bay on both the North Shore and the South Shore. Got it. So how is the um, uh, the competitiveness in, in the market on that? I mean, when you're not buying a uh, floating house and what's happening in the other market, I mean, is it, do you have competitive bidding going on when there's an available uh, property? It's been a very interesting year this year. You know, Uh some floating homes have sold right away and above asking, you know, where where there has been a bidding war. But Uh 
overall, it's been a you know a little bit slower start. However, traditionally, this is kind of when the season begins, uh, it, right before the fourth, that, right that before the fourth of July. You know, yeah, fourth of July. Like, well, that might be brings, nice to live on one of those. <laughs> you know, brings a lot of people by, and people start to dream about uh, you know living on a floating home. Yes. and that's that's really when the sales. Uh, so our market is just beginning. Got it. So, how did this come about that you? got interested in being an expert in the floating home market? <laughs> well, it's kind of where my whole past comes together. I, uh-huh. I, um, I was raised in a boat building family. Okay. Uh, my background is architecture and you put uh-huh. the two together and yeah. you know, you kind of have a floating home and it, it's, you know, I came, I moved here. I'm a rich, I was raised in the Netherlands and kind of a okay. you know, seafaring nation. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and uh, when I moved here to Seattle uh, and, and I discovered these properties, I just instantly fell in love and, and, you know, similar to the Netherlands also on a floating home, you live really close to your neighbors and it's very social and, and, and yeah, that's, that's the best I part bet. about it. Like, you don't see that, but you, you know what's wonderful is the social. Do you live on a floating yeah. home? I lived on it for ten years. Okay, yeah. alrighty. So Barry, financing. Um, all my listeners know that's my expertise is doing mortgages, but I don't have any options to finance a floating home. So where do you find financing for your clients? What banks out there are financing floating homes? Right. And how is it different from a traditional loan that I would do? For- yeah. So floating homes are a different animal, and lenders yes. tend to not to like different things. Yes. They, they, They're getting a little better now, but yes, you're correct. Yeah. So uh, it, it does change, but locally there's there's three banks, Sound Community Bank, Seattle uh-huh. Metropolitan Credit Union, and Pacific Crest Savings Bank Okay. Um, that uh, are financing most of the floating homes. Um, the interest rate can be slightly higher. All right. Again. Which is not bad when interest rates are under 4% right now. Uh, right. So. And the term of the loans can be a little bit shorter, too. So typical, okay. typical uh, term of the loan is 25 years versus 30 Which is years. Not, not bad. So there's no balloon payments or crazy things like that in when you're getting into to financing um, floating homes. Correct. No. Yeah. What about um, the down payment requirements? Do, what's a, a minimum down payment for a floating home? Um, I believe it's 10%. Okay, so that's not bad. I mean, it's, you know, there's, so there's good financing that's available uh, for them. So does a floating home require more maintenance? Uh, you? I, I would like to actually say that, um, that it requires less maintenance. Really? You know, really? That's you know, a surprising <laughs> answer. I would I, think there would be a lot more maintenance. You know, a lot of people are worried about... Um, uh, you know about moisture problems yeah. and, and uh, humidity, and that's not a problem at all. Really, you know, a floating home functions very much like a single-family home, and it's built exactly the same. Okay. It's just built on top of a, a float and a raft. Okay, it, even above the waterline, you know, we, the inspectors that we use are just online uh, on land uh, inspectors. Same. So same let's as talk about that because you'd mentioned inspectors before. So what is the difference when you're getting your home inspected of a uh, floating home versus a traditional house? What's the difference between the inspection for that? Well, the big difference is an underwater inspection. So we, oh. uh, you know, when we get divers to go underneath, oh, wow. and they look at the, you know, there's there's different types of foundations. They're concrete um, foundations. Okay. Some of them are concrete rafts. Um, uh, others are concrete basements, uh, and they're kind of giant tubs. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I have a client whose daughter lives uh, underwater actually, and she has a giant porthole and. She can uh, look through the window and see fish and, and turtles swim by. So. Oh my gosh, that and her, is her so father cool. dives in the water every three months and cleans the window. Really, wow! Mm-hmm. But um, uh, you know, and then there's uh, the traditional 
rafts that were constructed by the loggers ever since the 19, early 1900s, mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, or, uh, around 1900. A lot of the logs are still from the 1890s, yeah. actually, when you see those. So, tell they're, me so they're white cedar logs, uh-huh. and uh, they're like, kind of like inverted pyramids of, of logs with stringers over them to form a raft, and then a house is built on top of that. Okay. Tell the story about the houseboats and, you know, who who lived in the houseboats um, before they actually started becoming popular and people bought them. Because I, I think it's just a, a, a mer- amazing, the history. You know, the history, is, as far as I know it, it, it really started with the loggers. That, yes. You know, people that just didn't have any money to uh, uh, to live on land. And yeah. East, both East Lake and West Lake were flanked by logging companies. Mm-hmm. That's when it was a, a, a working lake. And, the you know, the tall ships would come in and they would load up uh, timber to, yeah. to take elsewhere. And, um, and they were just and, little and, shacks know, back there. And they just, you know, were building little shacks on yeah. top of the lake. Now, you know, the, the wealthy kind of looked at that and it's like, well, that's kind of cool, you know. Yeah, so, exactly. So pretty much instantaneously, they they uh-huh. started to claim uh, their spots as yes, well. Yes, makes sense. And so they, they they were always built side by side. So you also uh, talked briefly, but I like to go back there about the the community and the lifestyle um, of you know what it's like living on a floating home, and you know the community that you have with your neighbors. It's I would imagine the dynamics has got to be a little bit more special than a traditional neighborhood. It, it is. I mean, I have some of my favorite memories in Seattle there. Uh-huh. You know, my wife and I, we got married on the dock, you know, okay. where uh, the minister actually was a, pe- a person that lived uh, lived on the dock. Uh-huh. He's a, uh-huh. a, a, you know, pretty well-known Seattle, you know, author that, that uh, lived in Seattle. And uh, and I remember, you know, we had guests just like a traditional wedding, but the yeah. people on the dock, they, uh, on their houseboats, they had tables with food that they had prepared and and then the men were dressed in what was called dock formal, which means uh-huh. that it's uh, you know shorts, uh, uh, you know shorts, and then uh, a suit and tie from uh, from, nice. the, from the waist up. Okay, right? nice. So prices, uh, I'm I'm sure there's a, a range of different uh, costs associated when you're when you're purchasing a floating home. So what is that range? Anything that's on the market right now? I mean, what are you looking at? Well, anywhere from four hundred thousand to three point five million. Yeah, that's and a huge range. So you yeah. can get a four hundred thousand dollar, a four hundred thousand dollar houseboat. It's going to need some work. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But so uh, not move in, not a move in ready then. That's it's going to be it's going to be small and uh-huh. and probably not in not in great condition. It's okay. going to probably need some updating. Okay, and, and then uh, it goes all the way up to that three point five. Yeah, and typically as you get out farther on the dock, mm-hmm. the homes homes get more expensive. There was recently, uh, actually just today, a home came on the market for three point two million. Uh-huh. Dollars in Ward's Cove, and anybody out there interested, let us know. We'd be happy okay. to happy to arrange a <laughs> yeah, okay, a showing for you. You heard it right here, just uh, just listed. Yeah, just listed. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so, uh, yeah, totally uh, wide range, uh, something for every budget. Yeah. So, uh, what about how um, how many approximately are available right now? Do you guys know? I I think there's probably like eight or. Eight or ten so of them not, are, so are currently listed. Not, not, there's saying. never never much of a selection. So generally, wh- I meet clients, and I keep track of them, and I put them on a mm-hmm. on a search. Yeah. And as soon as one comes available, I send it to them. And if you know if it if it clicks, if it if it's a match for what they're they're hoping to find, and, yeah. You know, I just advise them to go take a look at it right. So away. I'm really surprised, and I I mean I, I don't live on a ho- you know a floating home, and but I'm here asking. You know, there's only eight properties available. Our market is crazy. Why are they not more popular? I mean, us Seattle people, I've, you, we love the water. It would just be amazing lifestyle. So, 
why aren't there just tons of people that are trying to get those only eight available <laughs> and you're not seeing multiple? Um, well, we we are seeing multiple. We but, are seeing but, multiple of it, but it, uh-huh. it varies a little bit from houseboat to houseboat, and and uh, it's just not been as aggressive as single family homes. And, yeah. and now, it actually normally normally the trend is actually that floating homes are kind of the the highest appreciating in Se- uh, asset in Seattle, really, because it's like owning downtown waterfront. Yes, exactly. You know? and and it's very unique to you know Seattle also has a very unique floating home community in the sense that it's freshwater. Mm-hmm. So others like communities like Victoria and Vancouver and also Sal Salido, they're they're on. Uh, they're affected by tide. So sometimes uh-huh. they have like eight foot swings between high and uh, low tide. Here, the level is pretty much uh, consistent. It varies a little bit between winter and summer by about a, a foot and a half. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, And then also the proximity to the downtown core is is very, very close. And, yes. and again, Vancouver and, and uh, Victoria, it's a little bit more removed from, further removed from, uh, from downtown. Yeah. Actually, Victoria is fairly close. So we're hearing a lot, you know, a lot more, especially in the Seattle market about uh, Airbnbs and can, is that, can you buy a, a, one of these maybe eight houseboats out there right now and, and run an Airbnb? You know, that is very unlikely that you're okay. going to find one. That would there, be really are profitable. Few, there are a few properties where you could do that with, but pretty much those are going to be private properties. Uh-huh. Most uh, condominium and co-op docs, they have rules for rental. Some of them don't even allow rentals at all. Wow. And others uh, will only allow long-term rentals. And some of them only uh, will allow rentals either during hardship or during, uh, okay. let's say, like a sabbatical. Well, I guess that makes sense because it's such a a, a, a niche community that you want to keep the spirit of that and not, you know, not have renters in there and, you know, definitely people coming in on short term. So that that makes sense. It's protecting um, the the community there for the the homeowners. I, absolutely. Yeah. Don't don't forget sound travels over the water. So you know, yes. if you have somebody yeah. come in, you know, if you have somebody come in over the weekend, they throw a party on it. It's yeah. just a nuisance to all the other neighbors. Of so that's course. why they're a little bit more protective. Makes total sense. What about additional uh, monthly fees that are associated to owning a floating home? Well, often on a co-op or a condominium dock, um, you, um, you know, you have homeowner dues. Uh-huh. Uh, often that includes water, sewer, garbage. Uh, on a condo dock, the um, taxes for the slip and for the houseboat are paid separately. On a co-op dock, the taxes for the uh, for the slip are included in your homeowner dues. Okay. So that's um, that, so that's one and, thing to be aware about. Uh, yeah. Property taxes. I know, like right now, it's probably around one 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 to one point two percent at the high end. What is that in comparison to uh, floating homes? It it varies from community to Got community. It. Yeah. Okay. So there's no 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 set rule. And are there still um, are there still spots available that you can purchase and then put up your your own? That they're that, seeing, you know, that you, people are actually building um, houseboats. You know, the community that um, um, that Barry was just talking about, where that really expensive houseboat came on for three point two million dollars uh-huh. today, it's called Ward's Cove, and and that has been the last community where new slips came available, and you know, each of the houseboats is brand new, and a few of them are still in the construction and and being built right now. But I, I think from now on, it's going to become more and more difficult, as uh, you know, because uh, all the mortgage now is required to be conforming mortgage. And uh-huh. so you, 
the problem is you don't only need to have the water space, but you also need to have upland parking available to be able yeah, to construct a sense. residence there. Okay, okay. So uh, what else is happening in your guys' uh, arena and this craziness uh, going on um, in expert advice that you have for uh, my listeners? Barry, what do, you, what do you got for them? Well, it's interesting. You know, I have so many people... Uh, friends and yeah it's a great market you know uh-huh. it's you know it's a hard market it and is a hard market it, it's a great market for sellers yes and uh but uh you know six years ago buyers were beating up sellers and now uh-huh. sellers are sellers are beating up buyers so it takes a lot of a lot of preparation you know get prepared as you can mm-hmm. um you know you're probably aware you know get your get your buyers uh, fully underwritten uh, yes. before you make an offer um and then have uh you know great great strategies to to increase your chances to um be the successful uh buyer that's you know out of the out of the 10 12 offers that you're probably going to com- be competing against yeah well said the the key thing is to to have the right people working for you and have the process and and that negotiation and the strategy as you said prepared so that you can go out there and um, win well, thanks, you guys, for coming in. It was uh, fun having a conversation about floating homes, and I appreciate your time today. Great. Thank you, Tina. Thank you. So nice to meet you. And this is your host and mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell, signing off for the day. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks for listening to the show. I will be back, same time, same place, next Saturday right here at 1150 AM at KKNW. The preceding program is paid for by Absolute Mortgage, a division of Finance of America Mortgage, LLC, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS 1071, AZBK 0910184. Tina Mitchell, MLO 145420, is a licensed loan originator with Absolute Mortgage. Visit absoluteloans.com or call 888-90-HOMES for cost information.